All right. If you want to turn to Mark chapter 6, we're going to read the first seven verses. And uh, I came across this passage and coming off the Easter high, just want to give you a little insight into the mind of a pastor. Um, Easter is something that we, you know, build up for like months, excited about it. We know it's going to be a big day. The week after Easter, I always like dread because like in the pastor world, we joke like we declare that the tomb is empty on Easter week. And then the Sunday following Easter, we declare the church is empty. And so if you're here today, like you get like extra God points. So yeah. Oh yeah. You can, you can, uh, yeah. I don't want to make some sort of joke about that. <laughs> um, and I came across this passage and I'm like, this is so depressing. Like, so I have to speak on this passage because we're going through the Gospel of Mark and then on this week when I know it's going to be like a small crowd and um, been wrestling with it all week and, and I just want to, to, to share it and then we'll see uh, just some observations that I, I think um, are going to be helpful. But uh, Mark 6, uh, let's start in verse 1. If you want to read it, it should be on the screen. It says, Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples so last week we left off, Mark chapter 5, he was up in Capernaum, huge event where he heals this lady who has this bleeding condition, he raises this uh, girl, Jairus' daughter from the dead, and now it says that he's heading back to his hometown. So this is Nazareth, this is where Jesus is from. It's a small town, it's west of Capernaum, he goes through this hill country, and he's with his disciples, he's going home. When the Sabbath came, verse 2, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were amazed. Like, oh, that's good, right? That's, they're amazed. And then this happens. They, they start asking questions. They say, where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Jude and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense to him. Verse 4, Jesus said, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown, among his relatives and in his own home. And he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village and calling the twelve to him, and he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. So, coming off Easter, running through this passage, and I'm like, well, that's, he goes home, and then he's rejected. He goes home, and he's disappointed with the response. What a bummer. This is similar to Mark 3 when we know that Jesus' family, you know, comes to him and they're like, he's out of his mind right now. He's back at his hometown and they're like, says that they, they, don't, they don't have, there's unbelief that sets in. When I was trying to think about like, how do we, we talk about this passage, what's going on with Jesus and it's just wrestling with it this week, this, this single verse just kept coming up over and over again in Mark chapter 6, verse 5. It says, he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And my thought was, well, that doesn't sound all bad. Like, he's 
doing miracles. I mean, if we saw people have, you know, lay your hands on, on someone and heal them, we'd be like, well, that's pretty cool. And, but, but whatever Jesus was doing before this moment, this is just like okay compared to that, right? And what I have found is this, this kind of describes my experience as a follower of Jesus. It's just okay. Like, Jesus does some good things. Does some things that you might call miracles. Sometimes I get the good parking spot at the grocery store. You know, sometimes I don't get the traffic ticket when I pray. The Lord, please let me not get this ticket. Like, we, and, and this is like, the experience is like, I, I know, I hear these stories about what Jesus is up to in this world. And, and like, I long for like seeing the lame walk and the blind see and the dead raised but my experience is very like Mark 6, 5, where it's just like an okay Jesus experience. And I, I think that's probably true for our church and our church culture here, like in, in North America. Like, Jesus is good. It's okay. We, we see little signs of, you know, it's like he's, he's carrying us along, you know. I find that Mark 6, 5 kind of summarizes my experience for the most part as a follower of Jesus. And how often do we find ourselves living just in this verse? Just okay. Then it says, he has this emotion when he he sees this unbelief. It says that he was amazed at their unbelief. It's like, that's an interesting word to describe. Like, like the first thing I, when you, you hear like lack of faith, I go back to like Darth Vader. Like I find your lack of faith disturbing, you know? Like Jesus is like, I find your lack of faith amazing. Like, what does that mean? So I'm like, what does this word mean? Uh, look at the original language of it. Like, what's the Greek? Like, what's going, and what I found is like, it was this word that's amazed. It, it also was defined as to wonder, to admire, to have an admi- admiration to marvel at. I was like, I, it doesn't seem like it's a negative connotation with it, not negative emotion, but like, it's because of the lack, what is Jesus doing here? I mean, it kind of reminds me of like Ron Burgundy and Ackerman, you know, the Will Ferrell character, like he gets home from work for a long day, he goes into the fridge and he realizes the dog has gotten into the fridge, Baxter. And he's like, what? what? You made a huge mess. And then he realizes that like Baxter ate like a whole wheel of cheese. And he's like, I'm not even mad. I'm impressed. That's amazing. How did you do that? Like, I, like think about Jesus is like, in, in my story so far, I have, I have raised this man who was a paralytic in front of people. They, they brought him down through the roof. He couldn't walk. I told him to get up and he walked. I, I've healed sick person after sick person. I healed the man with a shriveled hand. You all saw it. The word spread about this event. I healed a, a woman who had this bleeding condition. I raised a child from the dead. And you still don't believe? Wow. So Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. Here's what this uh, story doesn't mean. There, there's something deeply connected and mysteriously connected in this story between faith and Jesus' kingdom coming on earth and miracles. And I, I think that's a dangerous connection to make because what Mark doesn't do in this passage is he doesn't make this into some sort of systematic formula where it's like if you have X amount of faith, then X amount of miracle will happen. 
And I think what happens is sometimes we, we can attribute that, like God, God will only show up if we have enough faith. And, and what Mark's trying to say is like, no, 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 there's no formula for this. There's something mysteriously connected here. But then when it doesn't happen in our life, we so often attribute like this religious guilt, like, well, why, why is it the thing I'm praying for happening? Do I not have enough faith? And so I don't, I don't think we need to go there. I think there's something much more mysterious about what's happening here with, with these people and what they believe in Jesus' ability to, 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 to do miracles. And I think what, what's happening is it seems like Jesus has been limited in this space, this mysterious connection between faith and the kingdom of God showing up in this present moment is that when Jesus sees their hearts, so many of his miracles don't just have this physical aspect to it. They're holistic. There's something deeper going on inside the soul of the person. And when Jesus finds out that they they don't really want anything to do with him, they reject him, what he doesn't do is, is he doesn't have to prove himself. He doesn't impose his will on their experience. You want to know like what God's character is? We, we say, if God, if you're real, why don't you just prove it? Then all of these people will know and all of these people, because God doesn't override our will. So there's one element of, you know, my, the amount of my faith that doesn't change the character of God. It doesn't change who he is. It doesn't manipulate him to do something. It's like I think John Calvin said, uh, the sun doesn't shine any less just because we don't believe in the sun. But there's some sort of mysterious connection with God's work where he actually, he he doesn't impose his will to prove himself to these people. It says that he steps away. He creates space. And this jump starts the apostolic ministry of the disciples where he sends them out and starts to delegate to them. There's some sort of mysterious connection between faith and hindering the kingdom of work that's going on here. There could be a couple different possibilities of what this unbelief is, what this lack of faith is. There's things that I think I've experienced in my own life and in my own relationship with God and the questions that I have. But I think what's going on here with, well, I'll go throw out a couple observations of what I think could be going on here. I think, one, this lack of faith, this unbelief might be from this simple, I mean, Jesus says he throws out this proverb, like a prophet's never accepted in his hometown. There's something about familiarity that breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. I can't say the word familiarity very well. Familiarity, it's this extensive knowledge or close association with someone or something leads to a loss of respect of them or it. This familiarity, they're close. They, Jesus grew up in this town. They know his family. There's a, a great uh, Christian thinker and writer and speaker that everybody loves. Always happy, positive person. And um, I enjoy reading this person's books. I have a friend that's a pastor out in Washington, D.C. in Fairfax, just out of D.C., and just so happens that this famous person's niece goes to his church. And uh, we were out there one time for some meetings and had this conversation, and, you know, oh, my goodness, you're related to this person? That's so cool. And I remember she's like, well, yeah, it's not that cool. She's like, you don't know what he's really like. 
I mean, he's not always happy like that. If you knew what he was really like, you wouldn't be so impressed. I was like, oh, she sounds nice. <laughs> she's experienced him, not in the public circle, but in private. Like, she's experienced him when, you know, everyone's trying to get ready for Thanksgiving dinner and the turkey's overcooked or it, the, the stress of everyday life. And we so often, you know, speak differently to the people in our private circle than we do in the public circle. For this niece of this famous person, there's a familiarity there that's like breeds content. I, I experienced this. Like, I grew up here in Phoenix. My dad's a pastor. So, you know, like spotlight on the PK kind of thing. And the church that I grew up in, like, I, I go back there and I, and I speak, and it's like, they all know me and know everything about me. They saw middle school Jared grow up here and get in trouble and getting their kids in trouble and get in trouble with their kids in high school. And, like, I, I go back there, and it's like, they're... It's, it's just a different experience because I know they've watched my whole journey. That doesn't mean they're accurate with everything they believe about me, but they know me. There's some familiarity here. For Jesus, he goes back to this hometown, and when you think about like, what he experiences when he goes back, like these people in this small town of Nazareth or in these circumstances where they see his family growing up. I mean, they know the brothers, like James. It seems like James is just stubborn up until the resurrection. We know your brother. He's a punk. We know, they're like, they name them. They've got stories on this family. They know the sisters, and, you know, Jesus ends up kind of moving them all to Capernaum. Like, you think you're good, too good for us in Nazareth? You moved us out. You moved over to Capernaum? Bigger city, better economy. There's familiarity here. And I, I think what's going on is that this familiarity that, that breeds contempt, that, that breeds like this unbelief, is that they're not so much rejecting Jesus as the rabbi. They are rejecting the circumstances where they first encountered Jesus. They're not rejecting Jesus. They're, they're rejecting this, the circumstances where they first get to know Jesus. And then I started thinking, that happens all the time, doesn't it? Familiarity that breeds contempt, especially my generation. I'm barely a millennial, almost a Gen X. My wife's Gen X. We're an intergenerational couple. <laughs> but that's the knock on millennials, like we've all left the church. And most generations come back and we're finding that millennials aren't. Is it possible that the millennials who have grown up in the church and really had, should have had really great experiences in the church, they're not so much rejecting Jesus, they're rejecting the circumstances where they first encountered Jesus. Because there's baggage there. There's layers for them to unpack of the things that they experienced in the circumstances surrounding where, where they met Jesus for the first time. Familiarity breeds contempt. And if that's what's going on in this story, I think I get it. Second thing that this could be the unbelief is that the questions they start asking, God has no problems with our questions. These questions are pretty accusatory of Jesus. There's a cynicism to him. There's this assumption of his family where they don't give them the benefit of the doubt. What's one of the questions they ask? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? 
Like, this is a culture where, like, this is like the patriarchy. Like, you identify with your father's lineage. They don't bring up Joseph. There is a sting in this question because if you remember the story of Jesus, and if you don't know the backstory of Jesus, Mary's pregnant out of wedlock. It's scandalous. And, you know, we could read it from this other side of history where we know that the, the angel shows up and, and we, we have this understanding of what's going on. But if you're in that community, do you believe that? Would you believe that now? And so there's these rumors that are in this small town in Nazareth that Jesus' family has to navigate these accusations. And it's one of those things where it's like, you know, everyone's talking about you, but you don't realize everyone's talking about you. And then, then somebody slips and says something and you realize, oh my goodness, everyone's talking about me. There's this whole other narrative. We find that these questions are accusing and assuming the worst. And because of that, there's this cynicism of who Jesus is and what he's up to. Cynicism has a way of suffocating the heart of faith. Cynicism is something I deal with because I think in my story I've realized I'm not like just a naturally like smart person. I don't talk real good. And I think early on I found like when I could be cynical, I could actually sound smart maybe. Like I could pick something apart and like I'm more enlightened than everyone else. Well, have you thought about this? And and so I become very like I would attack things and pick apart things and because I thought that, you know, that makes me sound smart. There's a lot that's been said about cynicism. I love these quotes. Oscar Wilde says, a cynic is a person who knows the price of everything but the value of nothing. Stephen Colbert says a lot of things and a lot of funny things. He says this, and it's true, that cynicism masquerades as wisdom. It's the furthest thing from it because a cynic doesn't learn anything because cynicism is self-imposed blindness a rejection of the world because we are afraid it will hurt or disappoint us. So realizing in my own life, yeah, this cynicism actually is just masquerading as wisdom. I can assume the worst of things and point out things and bring things down to my level. It's not wisdom. Jeff Bridges, the actor, says, most cynics are really crushed romantics. They've been hurt, they're sensitive, and their cynicism is a shell that's protecting this tiny, dear part of them that's still alive. Crushed romantics. And George Carlin says, scratch (laughs) scratch the surface of a cynic and you'll find a disappointed idealist. Crushed romantic, a disappointed idealist that leads to this worldview of cynicism that just suffocates. And and my guess is, going back to the circumstances these people where they first encountered Jesus, something has gone wrong and they just have this heart of cynical cynicism now. I recently heard a really interesting take on the parable of the lost son. And we know this story, like it's, there's an older brother and a younger brother, and the younger brother wants his inheritance, and he leaves the father, and he goes and he spends the inheritance, and he parties, and he hits rock bottom, and he comes back to the house, the older brother we know, you know, is he's he's this very entitled person 
wants nothing to do with the reconciliation of his brother, says, I've done everything right. In this story, Jesus, is, this kind of represents like the religious establishment. And this take I heard, I thought was so interesting. And Jesus does this as a parable. It allows us to kind of imagine different scenarios in the story. We always just assume that the longer brother wants nothing to do with the father. But if this, like the character of the father is so loving and generous. But in this household, he has this older brother that is entitled it's probably a bad relationship. Is it possible that this younger brother didn't run from the father, but he ran to get out of the situation away from the brother? This relationship with the brother has soured his experience in this household, so he wants out and he runs. We just assume that, you know, it's, it's all on the younger brother. Maybe he had an encounter in that household that made him run from the father. He was an idealist that got disappointed, a romantic that had his dreams crushed. You think about people who've, who've left my generation. It's not just that they might be making an assumption based on the circumstances they first encountered Jesus with, but maybe they had a, a circumstance that, that just broke their heart in the household of God. Maybe they had a relationship that they just had to run from. What tends to happen is we allow this silly older brother to define our relationship with the father. Cynicism is something that's just contagious. You run into another person and you say, yeah, I had a story just like that. Let me tell you about how bad this household was I grew up in. Cynicism is uh, something that can just... The word that is used here when it says that all of them move from amazement to contempt. That's what cynicism does. It moves us from amazement to contempt. The word that's used is actually where we get the word scandal. It means to be repelled to fall away, to stumble, to, to fell foul of him, repelled to the point of abandoning. These people who hear these words from Jesus in the synagogue move from amazement to, oh yeah, keep bringing up these stories. of, And, and they move into this place where they're just repelled and they want nothing to do with Jesus. There could be a third type of unbelief that's happening here. Maybe it's just honest doubt. Like maybe we need to give these people the benefit of the doubt where they're like, you know what? This does sound crazy. We believe in an invisible God. They're hearing from Jesus and they're, they're questioning like, is this real? Because they don't want to give their heart to something that's not real. Maybe there's just this honest doubt here where they're just really wrestling and asking questions. Like, how is this true? How is this possible? What's going on? God doesn't have a problem with our questions. In fact, when you read the Old Testament, you run into Psalms and Lamentations, you, you find they're full of questions of people who just have this honest, authentic doubt to God. Like, where are you? Like, why have you forsaken me? Like, how long will the circumstances stay this way? What we find is that God does not mind our hard questions. 
He doesn't mind our honest doubt at all. Uh, my son Micah is crazy smart, very different than me. I'm kind of the, the jock athlete, and he likes to like nerd for things. And what I mean by that is he has solved a Rubik's Cube at 10 years old. I haven't done that in my whole life. He now does this thing where he sets a timer and like solves a Rubik's Cube really quick. And um, he's like teaching himself Spanish with like the family iPad on an app. Like, who does that? And he's 10. He, uh, you know, he's teaching himself how to play the piano and like this is extremely intelligent uh, kid. And, and we've given him a Bible. And so, like, his favorite book is Micah. Like, he's named after Micah. So, like, reads Micah. But I came home last night, just last night. And he goes, I have a question about the book of Genesis. And it's like, okay, here we go. Like, you know, first couple chapters of Genesis, you know, it, here, here comes a good question. And, uh, you know, he's, he's reading through it and he's like, you know, I, I have a couple of passages that I just love. And, and then I came across this passage and I, he's like, I just don't understand it. And I want to read it to you. So I just sat there and listened to Micah read. And it, it was the story of Cain and Abel. And it was like right after Cain had killed Abel, which I was like, don't get any ideas, Micah, if you're a little brother. <laughs> but, it, but the Lord has, has now confronted Cain about this, and he's talking to him, and it says in verse 11 of chapter 4, now you were under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer of the earth. Micah's reading this. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And he goes, that doesn't sound like the God that you've been telling me about. What is this? I'm like, oh, it's a good question. <laughs> Not ready to answer that for my 10-year-old yet. I'm trying to give a sermon tomorrow. It's an honest question. Because when we read scripture, and when we have these real experiences with God, there's a lot of questions, and that's okay. That's okay. We're a week after Easter. I've already been complaining about how I don't like this week. There's a really fascinating story that happens the week after Easter in the Gospels. The post-resurrected Christ, you know, he's showing up to, to the disciples, shows up to the women at the tomb, shows up to, to John and, and some of the inner circle. One of them hasn't seen the post-resurrected Christ yet. You know his name? Thomas. We all, yeah, we all know Thomas, right? Why? What is he known for? Doubting. Can you imagine going down to history as that? <laughs> Someone 2,000 years ago could be giving a sermon and be like, you know, the first, and everyone's like, Thomas, this is what he's known for. And it says this in, in uh, John 20, verse 24. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put a finger where the nails were and put my hand on his side, I will not believe. Thomas is a realist, and he's honest. Then it says, a week later, his disciples were in the house again. Thomas was with them, 
And through the, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it on my side. Stop doubting and believe. I don't have the next line up there, but this is what happens. Thomas says, My Lord and my God, and he falls at his feet and worships. What's interesting here is after Thomas makes this confession that he's like, I don't buy it, a whole week pass before Jesus shows up to him. Like, God, what, why not? Like, you showed up to the other disciples. Why do you not show up to Thomas? He was, he was one of the 12. You sent him out to do things. Like, in Mark chapter 6, he was part of the, the delegation that you sent. And Jesus doesn't show up to him for a whole week. You know what that week must have been like for Thomas? The doubt, the emptiness of that. Dallas Willard has an interesting uh, phrase where he talks about these honest doubts that we have. He says, from time to time, God allows us to stew in our doubts because it makes us people worthy of truth. Allows us to stew in the doubt because it means that this is real. We're really wrestling with this because we want something real. So is doubting bad? Are people allowed to doubt? What do we do with, with doubt? Like, you know, James, brother of Jesus, half-brother of Jesus, who doubts up until the resurrection, talks about doubt, and he's like, well, someone who doubts, you know, they're, they're like a double-minded man, unstable in all they do, like a wave blown and tossed by the wind. But another half-brother of, of Jesus, his name's Jude, talks about doubt, and he says, here's what we do with doubt and with people who are doubting. We be merciful to them. We be kind. We create space. Matthew 28, the resurrected Jesus stands up in front of the disciples and it says, many of the disciples were there and they were worshiping and right alongside them were those who still doubted. People who doubt, we, we extend mercy because I think they are going through real experiences of honest doubt. And I want to be a church that says, we can worship alongside people who have a lot of good questions. Come in, be here, be present, and let's be kind to each other as we wrestle with this. There is a man who wrote a book named A.J. Swadoba, it's a fun name to say, that I'm reading right now, and it's called After Doubt. And uh, he's a professor up in uh, Oregon, um, used to be a pastor, now he's moved into the academic and, and really like works a lot with this issue of, of people walking through this and wrote this book and tells this story about his church and young people coming back into his church. And there's this one uh, woman that's at his church who has just recently, you know, kind of returned and, and been okay being in church again. Um, and he got to know her story a little bit. She came in and had all these questions, and he's like the professor, so talking to him about it. And what he had found out is that her story, what she said was, uh, I, you know, in her words, I had grown up in the church and realized that being a Christian was just kind of forced on me. I was just, relationship with God was coerced. I had to, had to do it. And, and I had this, 
this, this family that was just overbearing and involved in everything and, and so concerned. And she's like, there's just no boundaries for me. Like with my parents, they just had, and, and she's like, I knew there were no boundaries because my mom would barge into my door all the time without knocking. Like all the time, she would just come through, never, never said, hey, I'm coming in. She'd just barge in. And she did that up until the time I was 18. And so what it did is it, it made me not want to like, I reveal things. I wanted to hide things from her because I was so mad. It just like hardened my heart towards her. And, and so I had this experience that was just overbearing and, and coerced on me. And then I you know, went to college and took a philosophy class, one class, and I was done. Just ran from it all. And then she says she had a kid. And all of a sudden she was like, I think I need God in my life. And if you've had a kid, you know that. Like, so she said, you know, I, I'm going to try to give this a second chance and I'm going to return and, and came back to church, to AJ's church, and decided to read the Bible again and opened up with these questions, God, if you're real, give me a word. Opens up the Bible to the book of Revelation. Like, great. You know, like, she has enough, you know, to know that that's, you know, who knows what God's going to say. And she opens up to this verse, and it's the red letters of Jesus' words. He says, I stand at the door and knock. I stand at the door and knock. For her, with her experience with her mom, she's like, what I realized is that my faith was coerced, but not by Jesus. I was in this environment, the circumstances that I first encountered Jesus. I wanted to run from. But Jesus has only ever invited me to relationship. He never forced that upon me. Jesus stands at the door and knocks. And he stands up in the synagogue, Nazareth, and he proclaims the kingdom. But he doesn't have to prove himself or overpower someone's will. This is an invitation to relationship. Jesus doesn't coerce us to relationship with him. He knocks. He doesn't force us into relationship. He knocks. It's an invitation. And the question is, will we open the door? Let him in. The band's going to come back up and going to spend some time just reflecting, being quiet and praying and singing this last song. In this story, these people reject Jesus and there's this unbelief, and I don't know why. Maybe there's things that they doubt because of what they've experienced, their crushed romantics. Maybe their first circumstances of encountering Jesus has all sorts of layers they need to unpack. Maybe they're just honest, like this is hard to believe. What I know is that we are merciful to people in the midst of that journey as a church. And if we are in the midst of that journey, the invitation is simple from Jesus. It's not forced. It's an invitation out of love. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your word. These old stories that we see real people encountering you with real situations and you just offer grace. Lord, we, we come to you with uh, 
different stories. We come to you out of different circumstances. We come to you with different questions. But we see how you, you just meet us in this place where we're at. Today, I ask that you would do that. That you would meet us here with wherever we're at in our journey. Lord, we see stories of Thomas who uh, goes on to become a missionary. How church tradition tells us he goes to India. How you, you take our questions and our doubts, you, you take them and, Lord, you, you, you redeem all of the honesty. Lord, I ask that you would redeem us. So in this moment of quiet, Lord, I just, we're grateful for your love, that you don't impose your will, you give us space. Today, Lord, I ask that you would just nudge our hearts. We love you. Your son's let me pray. Amen.